in these weeks, we're telling the, the final story of the Old Testament. Uh, Ezra, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah are leading three waves of migration back to uh, Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city. Uh, we zoom out of their story every few weeks here because there are several, we call them minor prophets, but just because their books are short, not because their message is not important, but there are several prophets who are spokesmen for God in this era. And so uh, many of their messages and stories you've you probably never heard before. For example, this morning we'll zoom out and I'll tell you the first half of the story of Zechariah. And uh, you probably have never, if I were just to say, hey, take a pen and everybody write down a few sentences of things, you know, that happened in the book of Zechariah, there'd be a lot of blank paper. And uh, that, that's fine. It's just not a place that's got a lot of focus. This morning, let me introduce you to Zechariah. It's a very bizarre book. Uh, it's a very uh, symbolic, lots of bizarre dreams. And I'll see if I can make it make sense for you. But it happens during the Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah rebuilding as they're coming out of the Babylonian captivity. That whole thing's like a hundred years as they're getting uh, Jerusalem rebuilt. And uh, see if I can tell you that uh, story this morning. We have many young people here who are uh, Bible college students. Some are still in seminary right now. Uh, from time to time, one of them came to me this morning and said, I'm taking a minor prophets class. I'll be writing papers on the minor prophets. I'm like, well, here we go. So this is tailor-made for some of you. And for the rest of you, I want you to be looking in the message this morning and asking yourself, and asking the Holy Spirit to say to you, what part of this is for me? Let me start with where I'm at when I approach the book. My mom is a great evangelist. Uh, if, if I have someone that I'm trying to lead to Christ and maybe I'm not getting through to them or I'm not making the right connection, usually one of the first people I will go to is my mom. And I'll say, Mom, pull this person aside and see if you can have lunch with them or something and see if maybe because there's something disarming about a 70-year-old woman or sometimes intimidating about a 70-year-old woman, but sometimes just different. Uh, as I told you about Susan standing up and teaching in Romania a few weeks ago, sometimes God comes at us with voices we don't expect. Uh, as I've told you before in my own life, I've been approached several times by like just a random waitress said something to me in a restaurant, and it went right to my heart with the words that they said. Sometimes God speaks with the voices of people and he surprises you and your guard is down and, and, and you get through. My mom is very passionate about the word of God, if you haven't figured that out. Very passionate about the word of God. Now I'm saying this to say this, in these areas I want to be like her. Good evangelist, I want to be passionate about the word of God. Some things from my own heritage that I've tried to grab a hold. I see in her life and I want to make those a part of my life. My dad was a great evangelist. In other words, uh, I can remember as a young person living in the home when other pastors in the community would call my dad, they'd call our home, ask for my dad, and they would say, hi, this is Pastor so-and-so down at the Assembly of God Church. It's your dad home. I need to talk to him. And they, my dad would get on the phone, and the pastor of another church would say to my dad, I've got a congregant that I'm struggling to lead to Christ. Would you come with me for a visit tonight to their home? 
My dad would go to their home and lead the, his congregate to Christ so that he could baptize them the next few weeks and, and build their church. That's what Christianity should look like in a community, by the way. Uh, we've got a wonderful invitation to go up to a Wesleyan community, uh, I think in the month of February in uh, South Dakota, North Dakota. Help me out, Miss Wiley. South Dakota. Uh, we're going to go up and, and be with some of our cousins in the Wesleyan community and uh, help their church get on a disciple-making model. That's what we think Christianity should look like. Well, I, I want to adopt this about my... Uh, I like that in my dad. I'd like to be... That's something he modeled for me and something I've taken into my life. I don't want to be a denominationalist. I want to be a Christ follower. My dad had a short temper and he over-disciplined. I do not want to be like my dad in this. Are you seeing how this works? My mom fixed me food that she liked and I hated and she made me eat it. <laughs> and when I didn't want to eat it, she guilted me. That there were poor people and we were poor and it's all we had. And if we didn't eat it, the world would come to an end. I don't want to be like my mom in that. It's terrible parenting. <laughs> my parents are hoarders. I don't want to be like them. I hate clutter. I just get a trash bag every once in a while and go through the house and just throw stuff away. I can't stand it. My parents have always modeled deep love for people, all kinds of people, all colors of people, all classes of people. I want to be just like them in that. Do you see how this works with your parents? What we want to do as we approach the book of Zechariah is we want to be open and honest about where our families are and how we move our families to renewed relationships with Jesus Christ we want to look at our families honestly we want to look at our parentage honestly and by the way you can pretend like it doesn't affect you your parentage does affect you you got lots of baggage and lots of blessing from your parents one you need to unload and one you need to wear as, as a badge of pride okay what I'm saying to you this morning is we want to take the best of our parents and leave the rest behind and never feel guilty for leaving the rest behind. As a matter of fact, this, I think, is one of those books in the Bible that tells you you need to leave some of the baggage of your parents behind. That's exactly what God's calling us to do and exactly what you need to do and figure out how to move your family forward in a covenant with Jesus Christ, a renewed walk, a, a better uh, situation. The good old days are not all behind us. The best days of Christianity should be ahead of us if we're doing what the Bible is challenging us to do. So, Zechariah is going to challenge you to renew your covenant with God. Let's look at Zechariah's challenge this morning. He's calling Israel to covenant renewal. That's what a prophet does they are uh, 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 spokesmen for God who constantly call us to covenant renewal? Zechariah proclaims that God's messianic kingdom is coming. 
So his message is God's kingdom is coming, new Jerusalem is coming, new king is coming, better days are coming, glory days are coming, revival days are coming. But as Israel is living this re-immigration and rebuilding of Jerusalem over a hundred years, it seems as though it's not happening. Why is it not coming to pass? Why is the kingdom of God not breaking out? So let me show you what Zechariah's twofold challenge is to the people. Zechariah chapter 1, verse number 2. I'm reading. The Lord was, here's Zechariah's words to the people. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty. And I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Now the word return and the word repentance are the same word. It means you're going away from God, turn around and return to God. Repent of your sins means turn from your sins and turn to God. The first part of his message is return to God. I want to say this to you from this verse and many others like it in the New Testament and elsewhere, sometimes it may seem that you've made such terrible decisions that you and God are a million miles apart and it'll take forever to get back to God. But the truth from the Word of God is this. If you would turn and move towards God, He will turn and move towards you and it won't take near as long to get back as you think because He's going to meet you. He wants you to renew your covenant. He wants you to renew your vows. He wants you to live, it's almost like a constant state of, of covenant uh, renewal. So the first part of the message is return, repent, come back to me. Now I'm going to read some more, verse 4. The second part of the challenge is this, don't be like your ancestors. Don't be like your parents. Now for everybody in this room, this is going to mean something different. You may have the most glorious parents ever, or you may have real parents like mine who are wonderful and hopelessly broken at the same time. So when the Word of God says to you, don't be like your parents, Brenna, I know your parents, they're wonderful people, but you know your parents in a different way than I know them, and there's probably some baggage you don't want to carry forward. So don't be like your parents. Now what I mean is, don't trash everything they are. These are wonderful people. Take the best from them. But how is God challenging you to lead your family even better than they led their family? And that's what your parents want, by the way. And if your parents don't want that, then it just shows you how broken they are. Because I'm going to say this about my own parents, who are godly people. They want me to be a better leader of my family than they were. And really, if your parents are followers of Christ and love you with their whole heart, and I know all those things are true, that's what they want for you. They know they're broken in certain areas, and they don't know how to get unbroken, perhaps, in those areas, but they want you to be better, followers of Christ, lead your children better, don't make the same mistakes they made. Now watch what Zechariah says. Don't be like your ancestors, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay any attention to me, declares the Lord. Now in this case, he's saying don't be like your parents because they wouldn't listen to God. 
They wouldn't listen to the prophets that God sent. They wouldn't listen to the message of God. Now remember, they didn't have like this Bible you have. For them, hearing from God was a prophet who would stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord, and he would speak for God. And they were just like, whatever. Threw Jeremiah in a pit full of slime and mud and left him there to rot. They killed the prophets. They, they, they stoned them. They, they did all kinds of things to them. He's like, don't be like your parents, who when God was trying to speak to them, they just wouldn't listen and they wouldn't change. Now, I'm going to put it very contextual to what's happening in Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah context. Zechariah steps forward to prophesy. Now, they're all about building the city, reestablishing the, the Mosaic law. Uh, uh, they're all about rebuilding the temple. And so when Zerubbabel steps forward to proclaim this message of repent, turn to God, don't be like your parents, he's saying to them, don't be content to have a place of worship, but there's no power of God here. There is no presence of God here. You've built a building, but God has not showed up. What does that tell you about the condition of your heart? You are going through a sham of a, uh, an, an outward motion here. But God is not showing up to bless what you're doing. Maybe we can help apply this to our own lives today. Don't be content with religion. What you need is a relationship with Almighty God. Now, the people he's speaking to are southern Jews from Judah. And these southern Jews, like the southern Bible Belt of America, these southern Jews are very separated. These southern Jews are very conservative. These southern Jews are very zealous about the Word of God. They're all about the Bible. And they're going to build a nice building for worship. And they're going to take the Bible very seriously. But they're completely and totally missing everything that God intends for them to be doing. What in the world are we going to do on planet earth when God's people have now developed and pursued their own agendas and have dismissed God's agenda? We call ourselves God's people, but we're not doing God's mission. We're not doing God's agenda. And they end up making Judaism their goal rather than the kingdom of God their goal. They end up being very Jew-specific not world kingdom oriented. Now I just want to, not saying it's happening, but I just want to pose something to you this morning. Is it possible that this is preserved in the Bible for us because a similar thing could be happening again in contemporary history? Could it be possible that people are trying to further the Catholic agenda or the Baptist agenda or the Lutheran agenda or the Pentecostal agenda or the Mormon agenda, or the Assembly of God agenda, or the Church of Christ agenda, and yet missing completely God's agenda. Could it be? Is it even a possibility that it could be happening? That we're so focused on advancing denominational goals in modern Christianity that we're missing the mark of what God's agenda is. In their context, I think it's very clear. God's agenda is to restore the rule of heaven, the kingdom of God, on this earth for all people on planet earth. And this is accomplished 
by being a gospel-centered people who make disciples of all the other nations. And what God's trying to prepare them for in this Old Testament, end of the Old Testament story, the Ezra and Nehemiah time frame, God is trying to get them ready for the new covenant. He's going to make a new covenant. The old ways are going to be done, and he's going to do something new. But they're so fixated on the good old days and old-fashioned worship and old-fashioned religion and old-fashioned singing and the old-fashioned ways that when God's trying to tell them, let's move forward to a new era, they want the old, not the new. I've seen some things like this in my life. God's trying to prepare them for new covenant. So Jeremiah the prophet happened before this, before uh, as they were going into the captivity. He said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I'll say it in a way that maybe Zechariah would appreciate. There's something happening in Jerusalem right now that's bigger than Jerusalem. What's happening in Israel right now with the people coming back and building the temple and building the city, what's happening in Israel is bigger than Israel. God has plans bigger and more grand than the restoration of Israel. The restoration of God worship in Israel is not the end goal that God's trying to accomplish. The restoration of worship in Israel is the means to a bigger end that God is planning. In other words, he wants to restore a temple and worship and the word of God so that Israel can draw all the nations of the world to worship Almighty God. God's interested in all the people of planet Earth, not just Abraham's DNA. Now, as I start saying this out loud repeatedly... The more you read your Bible, you'll see it on every page. Yes, God worked through the Jews, not as an end, as a means to draw all the nations to Christ. Psalm 2, it's a messianic psalm about a king. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. Isaiah 49, verse 6, he says, Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant, uh, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept? He, he's like, listen, restoring Israel's no big thing. I'm going to do much bigger things than that. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. That's the whole rest of the world. That my salvation may reach how far? To the ends of the earth. Genesis 18, verse 18. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. To what end is God going to make a nation of God's people? So that all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. But here's what's happening with the Ezra Nehemiah story. It seems that Those who have Abraham's DNA don't want this sort of all-people kingdom. They want a Jewish kingdom. They're thinking very worldly. They want our nation to be great and our nation to rule over your nation. 
They are thinking the way that all conquering nations think throughout history. We want our nation to rise to be a superpower, and we want to subjugate the other nations underneath us. That's what God means when he says Israel will be great. That's not what God means. What God means is I want to use you to draw all the people of the world into a relationship with me. I want to bring the Gentiles to me through you, the Jewish people. And they're totally not on the same page as God. Much like the modern church is not on the same page as God. God's not interested in making Baptists better Baptists and Church of Christ better Church of Christ and Pentecostals better Pentecostals. God is interested in reaching all people on planet earth and bringing them into saving knowledge of his son Jesus Christ and having them be discipled so they can reproduce other Christians and bring the whole world into the kingdom of God. That's God's agenda. But what we've created now is a system of our group and your group, and you've got to be like our group, and we're going to be different from your group. And if you're not like our group, you're not welcome into this group. The whole thing is broken. It's just like ancient Israel. God's trying to do something big, and God's people are trying to do something small, and God's like, why don't you let me do the big thing? And they're like, because we want to just keep it our little group. That's why. We want to be exclusive. We want to have exclusivity. And God's like, why do you want exclusivity? Why not have a God's kingdom on earth mentality that all the nations would be blessed? Listen, you're still important because through you, they're going to hear the gospel. You're going to be their spiritual parents. You're going to be their spiritual grandparents. Isn't that blessing enough? To look at the the people of Nepal and the people of Nicaragua and the people of Mexico and the people of India and to say, we helped lead these people to Christ. These are our disciples and they're going to win generations of rice farmers. (laughs) They're going to lead generations of IT directors. (laughs) They're going to lead generations of engineers and doctors and lawyers to Jesus Christ. People we would never reach. Isn't that enough? of a heritage that you want to be a part of, something like that. God is making a new Israel, a new people that will be in a new covenant with him by faith, not by DNA. Because in God's mind, being Israel is not about being Abraham's DNA. It's about being in a covenant with God by faith in Jesus Christ. Let me read Romans 9, 6. It is not as though God's word has failed. Listen to what Paul's saying now to European Gentiles. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Is that making any sense? Paul's like, God doesn't consider you a, a Jew just because you have Israeli DNA. Not all descendants of Israel are Israel. Israel is an idea in God's mind. Israel means God's covenant people in God's mind. But in the Old Testament and forward, they started making Israel mean something else. And Paul's like, no, Israel is an idea in God's mind that you are God's covenant people. And everybody's running around saying, well, we're Israel. We have a circumcision. We're Abraham's DNA. And Paul's like, you're you're mutilators of the flesh. You're trying to subjugate people into your rules. That's not what God's talking about. 
Romans 4.16, he says to the European Christians, Therefore the promises come, how? By faith, so that it may be by grace and it may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Now watch Paul play a word game here. And by all Abraham's offspring, he says, to those who are of the law, Jew-Jews, DNA-Jews, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham, Gentile-Jews. Israel, who is Israel because of their faith. Abraham, he is the father of us all. Why? Because he believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. Paul writes to another group of European Gentiles, the Philippians. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs. He's talking about Jews. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we... And when he says the royal we, he's writing to the Philippians. These are European Gentile believers. For it is we, not Jews, Gentiles. For it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Jesus Christ, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So now here's what I want to zoom back out again. We're telling the last story of the Old Testament. So this is what sets the stage for Jesus to show up. And when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're like, here Jesus steps into this Jewish world, and you're wondering how the world came to be this way. Ezra and Nehemiah, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and Zechariah and Malachi, these prophets, they're telling you how the world got to be the way it is when Jesus showed up. And so when the New Testament opens, the New Testament authors will pick up seamlessly this same uh, uh, theme, and the New Testament authors will have their main characters, who the first main character of the New Testament is John the Baptist. He's the first one that shows up with a message. We've had 400 years of no prophets, complete silence from God, and then John shows up. He's the opening character of the New Testament, followed by Jesus Christ. So when the New Testament writers begin to write their Gospels, They have their opening characters, John and Jesus, pick up seamlessly the challenge and the theme of Zechariah. Watch John's message when the New Testament opens. Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and his message was... What was his message? You're going this way. Turn to God. The same message Zechariah was preaching at the end of the Old Testament. Same story, we just moved it on a little further. So now a prophet shows up like these old prophets, like Zechariah, and says, listen, let me pick up where they left off. Repent and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is come near. It has come near. It's here now. It's not a future thing. It's right now. Well, you know the story. John was... Uh, put in prison, he will be beheaded because of, because of his conflict with the king. And Jesus immediately picks up the message of John the Baptist. John's message, that was Matthew 3. Here's Matthew 4. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach. What was his message? Repent 
Turn to God. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's here right now. God's rule is coming to earth. That's what the kingdom of heaven means. God's rule is coming to earth. God's kingdom is here. Repent and get yourself ready because God's kingdom is here. Now, the religious leaders of Jesus' day... So here's the two-part message to Zechariah. Repent. Don't be like your parents. Okay? Now, the people of Jesus' day said, but we're not like our parents. We're not like our parents. Listen to what Jesus said, Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, You hypocrites, watch all these exclamation points here. You build the tombs for the prophets and you decorate the graves of the righteous and you say, well, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part in shedding the the blood of the prophets. We're not like our parents is what they're saying. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Watch what Jesus says to them. So go ahead, go ahead then, complete what your ancestors started. They're going to kill Jesus. Go ahead and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Now, the people of Jesus' generation, I'm not the religious leader, said we're not like our parents. Jesus' conclusion is, you're just like your parents. Maybe worse. You're just like your parents. You say, well, that's harsh. Well, it's interesting because Peter's going to show up as the next big spokesman of the church in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit comes down and Peter's going to stand up on Pentecost and begin to preach a message to the Jews. And you know what? Peter concludes the exact same thing. Peter peeks up the mantle and preaches the exact same message to his fellow countrymen. Listen to this. Acts 3 verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed Jesus over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate. Though he had decided to let him go, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are all witnesses of this. Verse 19, Peter says to them, repent. Turn to God. Repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. That the times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Verse 24, indeed, beginning with Samuel and all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, "Though you're, through your offspring, which people? All people on earth. The Jews aren't the end. The Jews are the means to the end. Through you, all people of the earth are going to hear the message. Through you, all the people of the earth are to be blessed. That was God's plan. 
But what happens when you lock up the church building? What happens when you lock up the temple? What happens when you say no Gentiles allowed, no women allowed, no unclean people allowed, no lame people allowed, no diseased people allowed, no misshapen people allowed, no deformed people allowed, no uh, uh, less intelligent people be allowed? Well, suddenly you've made it into something different. Now you're not on God's agenda anymore. Now you're building walls and barriers for people when I intended for you to be the way for the world to hear about the rule of God. Everyone was supposed to look to you and see how glorious it was to be God's people and want to be a part of that. You were to draw the nations to God. After Zechariah's opening challenge of repent and don't be like your parents, now we're presented with the eight night visions. Now, if you go home and read Zechariah this week, and you start reading the dreams, you're, you're, you'll have nightmares because it's, it's like your dreams. They don't make sense either. You have all kinds of wild... Susan has an alter ego that she dreams in all the time. She's a super spy who saves the world and does the ninja acts, and, you know, she, it's a recurring thing. Uh, uh, you probably have some type of recurring dreams. You probably have some dreams sometimes that make no sense at all. God used dreams in the past to speak a message to people. It's not uncommon in Scripture. Jacob saw a vision and Daniel had dreams and Joseph interpreted dreams. And it's all throughout the Old Testament especially. It's mentioned again that it might happen in the New Testament. Young men will see visions, young men will dream dreams. And God used this to speak. Now I want to be careful with this because not every one of your dreams has a spiritual significance. So when you have some dream this week, you're like, oh, God spoke to me, and here's what's going to happen. Okay, if it doesn't align with the Word of God, it's not, it is just, you know, too much pepperoni before bed or something. Okay, it was something else that caused that. God doesn't use every one of your dreams, but if God wanted to communicate, He often did it through a dream or through a vision. So that's all I want to say. Those dreams and visions helped explain current events to these people. And it also explained a little bit about what would happen in the future. Here are the eight night visions. What's confusing about the book of Zechariah when you read it sequentially is that's not really the way it's laid out, should be laid out. Uh, I'll explain this to you. There are eight dreams you're going to see in the opening chapters of the book of Zechariah. Uh, They are symbolic dreams. And they are laid out in such a way... uh, Can you go to the next slide? They're laid out in such a way where the first dream and the eighth dream match. And the second dream and the seventh dream match. And the third dream and the sixth dream match. Does that make sense? Each dream has a mirror and they work like this towards the middle. Now if you didn't know that, it'd be a confusing mess to read through there. But now that I've showed you that, you'll see how it works. So here are the eight dreams i'm up as quick as i can just summarize the eight dreams the first dream is the dream of the four horsemen this is visions one and eight let me read some of this so you'll understand what i'm saying zechariah 1 8 here comes the first dream during the night i had a vision and there before me was a man mounted on a red horse he was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine behind him were red brown and white horses I asked, what are these, my Lord? The angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. 
Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, They are the ones the Lord has sent to go through the earth. These horsemen. The Lord has sent these four horsemen to go through the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the trees. Here's their message. Here's their report. We have gone throughout the earth. And we have found the whole world at rest and at peace. That's their message. The corresponding vision is vision number 8. Let me just read a few verses. I looked up again, Zechariah 6.1. And there before me were four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. Then he called to me. Look, those going towards the north country have given my spirit rest in the land. Vision 1 and vision 8, each one is about four horsemen going through the earth. The horsemen represent God's watch over the nations. God's looking at the nations. He's getting a report about what's going on on planet earth. And Persia has now conquered Babylon. Babylon who was... uh, who has enslaved Israel. Persia has now conquered Babylon and Persia is going to let all the nations go free. Going to send Israel back to Israel and let her rebuild again. So the four horsemen give a report about the status of the earth and they say, Persia has conquered Babylon. The world is at peace right now. God's people have rest. Now, at the same time, God's people are read. They know the prophet Jeremiah has said, 70 years and you'll be released. They know they're going back to build now. And they're saying, well, we're back in the land. Is the kingdom of God about to be restored? Is the Messiah about to show up? Is now the time for God to do everything he said he was going to do? And here's Zechariah's answer. God has said he will do what he will do. God has said, new Jerusalem, new king, new Messiah is coming. God will do what he said he has determined to do. But that wasn't their question. Their question was, is now the time? And Zechariah won't answer the question. He leaves the question of timing unanswered. Now, doesn't that drive you crazy? Because that's all of our question. When is God going to do what he's going to do? Well, maybe he's, let's just hold on to that. Vision 2 and 7 now. These are the vision of the four horns is where it opens. Zechariah 1. Then I looked up and there were set before me four horns. And I asked the angel who was speaking with me, what are these four horns? And he answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. So they're nations. They're the nations who conquered Israel. This is Assyria and Babylon. And that's what these horns represent. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. Depending on what translation you're using. One translation says four uh, uh, carpenters. One says four blacksmiths. One says four workmen. What I want you to see in your mind. Just put in your mind a big burly bearded leather banded arm blacksmith. With arms as big as your legs, okay? Guy who pounds a hammer into an anvil all day. Big, rugged, burly blacksmith. That's the vision here. There are four horns, and then there's going to be four uh, blacksmiths here 
in just a minute. So what are the four horns? They're the nations who scattered Israel. What, what are this? He said, I showed four craftsmen, verse 21. What are these coming to do? And he answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise their head. But the craftsmen have come to terrify them and to throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter the people. So the horns are Assyrian Babylon and the craftsmen or the blacksmiths are now coming to attack the people who attacked Israel. So these nations rose up and persecuted God's people. Now God raises Persia up in a blacksmith and smashes the horns of the nations who, who provoked God's people. And so now the world's going to be at peace and rest. God's going to let his people go. The corresponding vision, number seven, is found in Zechariah 5. It's a very, very wild one here. Then the angel who was speaking to me came forward and said... Look up and see what's happening. See the vision. And I asked, what is it? And he replied, it's a basket. And he added, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. So this is really easy. There's a basket, right? It's going to have a heavy lid made out of lead. And they're going to peek in the basket in a minute and see what's inside. But they've already told you what it represents. The basket represents this. It is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. It's Israel's sin. Whatever is in this basket, whatever the basket represents, it's Israel's sin against God is what it is, okay? Then the cover of lead was raised, verse 7, and there in the basket sat a woman. And he said, this is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and put the lead cover back down on it. And then I looked up, and there were two women before me with wind in their wings. They had wings like those of a stork. Yeah, your dreams don't make sense either sometimes. They had wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth, and these two women grabbed the basket with the big wings of a stork, and they flew the basket from Israel all the way across the Middle East, and they landed at the airport in Babylon. That's what's happening. Israel, because of her sin, is going into captivity. Do you see that? You say, what's the woman in the basket? It's Israel's iniquity. It's probably an idol is what's in there. It's probably an idol of a female deity put in that basket. And they're like, oh my gosh, put the lid back down. Fly that thing away. You say, what's happening? They worshiped idols and they're going into captivity. That's what's happening. Verse 10, where are they taking the basket? I asked the angel speaking to me. He replied, to the country of Babylonia... To build a house for it. When the house is ready, the basket will, when the time's right, she's going into captivity to pay for her sins. So the seventh dream is about a woman in a basket representing Israel's wickedness, probably an idol, maybe an idol. Israel's wickedness is being carried off by these stork-winged uh, figures. Now here's why the two visions go together, because both visions refer to Israel's past sins. Israel broke the covenant, and because of the covenant, she goes into captivity. Give it some time, and when God's finished, he'll break the captivity by raising up Persia, and they'll send her back in peace. Visions 3 and 6 are about the New Jerusalem. These two dreams are both about rebuilding a new city, a new Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 2. Then I looked up and there was before me a man with a measuring line. Somebody put that in modern language for me. 
a tape measure. Okay. You do a big job, Eric. That'd be a, 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 a wheel, measure, a rolling measuring wheel. You know what I'm talking about? So what you want to get now is now you're seeing an architect's table and a plumb line and a measuring wheel and some civil engineer plans. This is what's happening in this dream. I looked up and before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I said, what are you doing there, buddy? And he said, well, I'm going to measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and how long it is. And while the angel who was speaking to me was leaving, another angel came to meet him. And I said to this angel, run and tell that young man this. Now, I want you to pay attention to the words of the angel. Run and tell the young man this. Jerusalem will be a city. And what will be the features of the city? Because in a few weeks, Pastor Josh is going to take you to the book of Nehemiah. And it's all going to be about building walls. Now, what are walls for? Well, you've got to keep something out or keep something in, one of the two. But it's restrictive, again, and it has to do with protection typically in their context of Nehemiah. So God says, I want you to build a city without walls because of the great number of the people and animals. I intend to do something big. And walls are not going to work with what God plans to do. Verse 5, And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in it. Well, now that's the Jerusalem we want to live in, friend. See, they wanted to build a place of worship where God would be there. And if listen, if God is there in the place of worship and the glory and power of God are there, do you realize you're not going to need a wall? <laughs> God's going to do all the protecting if He's there. Uh, imagine how silly the wall would be redundant if the presence of God was there. No one's going to harm you if God is there. Now there's the vision. Somebody's getting ready to rebuild a city. God says, here's the city I want it to be. Zechariah 2 verse 10. Shout and be glad, daughter of Zion, for I'm coming and I will live among you, says the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. Do you see how the exclusivity keeps being chipped away at? Not just you. The nations are going to be called my people and I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Now, this is a promise that God's going to be, Jerusalem will be rebuilt and God is going to reconstitute a people and he's going to have a covenant people and it's going to include all nations of the earth and those people are going to reflect the glory of God and God's going to be there and he's going to protect them. This is all hearkening back to your uh, vocation in Genesis chapter 3 that God's people would act as angled mirrors reflecting the image of God to the nations to show the way that all nations all people would enter into a relationship with God and worship and serve him this has always been what God wanted not to have one little clique who had exclusivity, but that one group of people who had a relationship with God would reach out and help the whole world find a relationship with God. 
The corresponding dream, let me just sum it up quickly for sake of time. The corresponding dream, dream six, is about a flying scroll. Scroll represents the word of God. And the, flying, the scroll is flying around this new Jerusalem. And it's punishing thieves. And the scroll is punishing liars. And the idea is this. This is all about the new Jerusalem. God's going to build a place where his presence and protection are. And the word of God rules. That place. The Word of God is prominent, and the Word of God will be uh, purifying the people. Fourth vision. Vision four and five go together in the vision of the key leaders. Uh, the, the, the dreams of four and five center around the two key leaders from the book of, Ezra, uh, book of Ezra. And the two key leaders in the book of Ezra are Joshua the high priest, descendant of the old high priest, and Zerubbabel, the royal descendant of King David. It's the would-be king and the would-be high priest. They're the subject of the next set of dreams. Zechariah 3. Now Joshua, this is the high priest, was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Take these filthy clothes off of him. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin." And I've put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Circle this word in your mind. If. Now I just wanted to let that hang for a minute. There's a lot about what God wants to do that's waiting on you. If you. God has a plan for your life and for this community and for this world. If you will do what you're supposed to do. So the dream, they take the dirty clothes off the priest and put the clean clothes on the priest and said, the sin is taken away. This is like a fresh start here. And he says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. If you will keep my covenant, I will make you guys symbols of the future coming Messiah. I will make you symbols of what I'm about to do, and I will bring forth my servant called the branch. It's a prophetic name of Jesus Christ. But I will make you a picture of my coming Messiah, a representative for this generation, if you will do what I'm asking you to do. The sins have been forgiven. Clean clothes have been put on you. God's just ready to give you a whole nother fresh start, Israel. Now listen, no matter what mess you may have made of your own life, I want you to know God's ready to give you a fresh set of clothes this morning. He's ready just to wipe the slate if you will repent and turn to him. He'll wipe the slate clean and we can have a do-over this morning. If you're willing to do that. And he says, okay, Israel, you're going to get a do-over. And I'm going to make you leaders symbolic of the Messiah. If that's 
what you will do. Now, dream five that corresponds is about two olive trees. And again, it's Joshua and Zerubbabel, the, the king and high priests. And the two olive trees are dripping oil into a very fancy lamp. The lamp is a picture of God's watchful care over Israel. And the two trees are pouring oil into the God's watchful care over Israel. They are leading the temple rebuilding effort and reestablishing the Jewish society. And basically what comes out of this vision is God tells them that success will not come to their efforts if all they represent is a bunch of political maneuvering. If religion is about denominationalism and politics and plotting and planning and maneuvering and, and getting the right people here and doing this and, uh, you know, and stroking the king's ego and getting the king's money and, and if, if it's just civil engineering and political maneuvering, then it's going to come to nothing. These two leaders must be dependent upon the work of God's Spirit. Not my mind, not my power, but my spirit, saith the Lord. So let me summarize it this way. The success of God's kingdom is only going to be accomplished through people who are spirit-led and spirit-empowered. Now there's a modern message for you right there. The church is not going to get, what, not going to accomplish for God what it needs to accomplish just by lobbying and political contributions and, and get out the vote. And that seems to be where religion is in America right now. If it's just a political maneuver, it's not going to get accomplished what needs to be accomplished. God's trying to do something bigger than that, and it's only going to be accomplished through people who are filled and led by His Spirit. Now, there's the four pairs of visions, and it's like if you buy eight, you get one free. So now here's a bonus vision. The bonus vision builds on the dream I just talked about, about the two leaders, and it expounds further about Joshua the high priest. Here it comes. Take the silver and the gold and make a crown. Set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua the son of Josadak, and tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. A statement that keeps showing up. Speak for God. This is what God says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, forecasting of Jesus, and he will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. They put a crown on the priest's head in this dream. Not really, but in the dream, he is crowned. And the dream means this. God is going to send his king. God is going to establish his rule on earth. That's called God's kingdom or the kingdom of heaven. God is going to reunify heaven and earth. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the way it began. God, you're supposed to be praying, Jesus said. Your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, let your rule come down to earth. And Lord, you rule through uh, your people. So that he's given a crown. Represents the future Messiah that will come. And then Zechariah says this. Now all of this that I've talked to you about is only going to happen if God's people are faithful to fulfill the terms of their covenant. Now I've given you dreams and visions. This is what God says I will do. But only if you will be God's people. Be faithful to the covenant. 
So let me say it a different way. The coming kingdom of God is conditional to people being faithful to the covenant of God. Now I've got like 30 seconds. Let me see if I can summarize chapter 7 and 8. He ends with another challenge. A group of Israelites, after all of this, now ask Zechariah, okay, so God's going to do all of this. Is it time for us to stop grieving? I mean, we've been like grieving for 100 years here. Our city's been destroyed. Worship has stopped. We've not been a people. We've had no identity. All of these problems we faced. And now, again, we're going to be a nation again, and we're going to be God's people. Is it time to stop grieving? We've been mourning the loss of the formal former temple for more than 70 years can we stop crying is God's kingdom going to come now and Zechariah repeats the message again he said God's kingdom's only going to come if if you are faithful to the covenant listen how it's worded though and the word of the Lord came to Zechariah this is what the Lord says administer true justice Show mercy and compassion to one another. This is sounding very New Testament suddenly. Very New Testament. Listen to verse 10. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Sounds very Sermon on the Mountish to me. Do not plot evil against each other. But they refused to pay attention. This is the same story we just keep telling. Don't be like your parents. They refused to pay attention. Stubbornly they turned their backs. And what did they do? They covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as a rock. Flint. And would not listen to the law or the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by His Spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. Now the people are asking Zechariah, Okay, God was angry. We paid for our crime for 70 years. Now we're back in the land. Is now the Messiah going to come? Is now the glory days of Israel... Are the nations going to be subjugated? Is Israel going to rule the world now? And here's how Zechariah responds. I don't know. Are you going to care for those who are vulnerable in society? That's not the response we expected. They're like, okay, is is God going to do something great with our church now? Here's the message of the prophet. I don't know. Are you going to love and care for those who have no socioeconomic safety net? I want God to do something great through my life. Okay, are you going to care for the widow and the orphan? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I want God's power and I want to be an overcomer and I want to be a great Christian for God. Great. You're going to care for the widow and the orphan now? Do you see how we've made some kind of disconnect in our mind about what being God's people is? Letty wrote me a beautiful note this week about something that happened in her life. And she was listening to these bizarre sermons from the Old Testament and how God had spoken something. But here's what I want to say, Letty. Then you went and did something. That word you heard from God convicted you and you went and approached someone and 
did something about it. That's what God's waiting for from all of us. God's like, I want to do this. I'm just waiting for the ladies of the world to do their thing. And when you do the little thing you did in response to the Word of God, now watch how God will bless. Be, be expecting it. Be expecting something to happen from that. I, I want to challenge your thinking about what Christianity is. We want God to save America. Why? God's people don't intend to do anything. Why would God do? He wants to do something, but he's waiting on his people to get with the program. Is now the time? I don't know. Are you ready to care for the poor and the widow and to treat each other with kindness and to stop fighting? I mean, that's basically the message we just got. And the people say, no, Zechariah, stop with all that religious conviction stuff that's not what we're asking we want to know if god's really going to be our god now zachariah reverses the question again and here's what he says to them paraphrased i don't know are you going to be a people ready to receive and participate in god's kingdom is god's kingdom going to come now is god going to be our god i don't know are you ready for that are you ready to be a people who are ready to get with god's program No, that's not what we're saying. We want God to come and make us great. And God's saying, are you ready to be the people who are ready to receive? Listen, I think a lot of wonderful Christians are waiting for Jesus to return. And if he were to return, you'd be quite ashamed because he's going to scold us. Because we've not been doing what he told us to do. (laughs) Wouldn't it be much better if we started doing the mission of Christ, so that when he returned, isn't this what the parables are about? So that when he returns, we'll not be ashamed before him at his coming? You're saying, well, I want God, wait. Are you going to be the kind of people that God would be pleased with if he showed up today? Are you living in the kingdom right now? Let me see if I can sum it up. You may be saying to yourself, okay, yes, I'd like to do this. How? How can I be a people ready to participate in the kingdom of God? As quick as I can sum it up, turn to God. You say, well, I've already been saved. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying renew your covenant with God. Turn back to God with all your heart and say, God, whatever your plan is for my life, yes, is my answer to that. I wanna, I'm going to turn to you and away from my sin, and I want to be your covenant person. Let me say it a different way. Turn to God this morning with a new seriousness. Be serious about what it means to be a follower of God. I want to renew my relationship with you. Listen, it happens a lot when we're young. We get saved when we're young. But something happens along the way as you start maturing. And you're like, ding, ding, ding. I haven't been serious about my walk with Christ. And all of a sudden it will strike you somewhere in your journey that, wow, you know, I'm 15, 16, 17, or 25, I better get serious. Or sometimes it happens when we have kids, and you're like, wow, I better get serious about my covenant and my walk with, with, with God. So that's the first thing I would say to you we need to do this morning, and we'll have a moment to do that in just a minute. The second thing I would say to you, interpret it how you need to. Don't be like your parents. You've got great parents. You've got great parents. But there's some things you need to improve on. You've got great parents. Some things you need to improve on. My boys are listening. You have great parents. 
But there's some things you could improve on. That's my own testimony. There's some things you could improve on. Do it better than Susan and I did. Be better followers of Christ than we were. Do better with your children than we did with you. Make our grandkids better than all of us. Teach them how to follow Jesus Christ. The third thing I would say to you is nothing's going to come to anything unless we're spirit-filled people. So let's all get serious about God's spirit lives in you. His name is Holy Spirit. God lives in you. And his voice is speaking to you every day. You must listen, talk back to him, and yield to him. And and being a spirit-filled person means acknowledging that there is a spirit in you of the living God. And as you're driving to work and he says something, don't ignore him. Wouldn't that drive you crazy? If you spoke to someone you loved, y'all are driving down the road, Hannah, and talking to your husband, blah, blah, blah. He just ignores you. Blah, blah, blah. He just ignores you. And you're like, dude, are you not going to talk to me at all? Please respond. I wonder if the Holy Spirit's not grieved because of just of our lack of communication. God is speaking to you. Speak back to him. Turn it into a conversation and say to him, I hear you, or say, I don't, I don't know if I understand. That's a fair conversation too. Say to God, I'm not sure I understand what you're trying to say to me. Can you make it more plain? I'm not that bright. I say that all the time to God. God, I think I'm hearing your voice right now, but I'm not sure. Can you make it a little more clear for me? Can you say it a different way? Can you use somebody else's voice to say it to me sometimes so that I get the message you're trying to say to me? Now I'm going to give you the last phrase of Zechariah, and I'm going to close. If we will work in partnership with the Holy Spirit, we will reach people. We will reach people. Because Spirit-filled people on the mission of God can change a community. I know this. Here's what Zechariah says in closing. This is what the Lord says, Zechariah 8.20. Many peoples. Do you see how this is always God's plan? Many peoples. And the inhabitants of many cities will come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and they will say, let's go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat Him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by his robe. And they will say, let us go with you because we've heard that God is with you. Now, I just want to sum up what Zechariah is saying. God said, I want to draw the whole community to me. I want to draw the whole world to me. And those who are in a covenant relationship with me, should, the world should know who they are by how they live. And when the world wants to find God, he's going to find a a, a Jew. A Jew doesn't mean DNA. What does it mean? It means those who have faith in God. And when somebody wants to hear from God, they should, Brenna, come and take you by the robe and say, you're going to meet with God, I'm going with you. Eric, you're going to meet with God, I'm taking you by the hand, I'm not letting go. Show me how to meet with God. Chris, you're going to meet with God. You're one of God's people. I know it. I want to know God, and I'm going to take hold of you. Take me to God.
That's God's idea of what you should be. I want to say this in closing. Our divine vocation is to restore God's rule on earth, to reflect God in such a way that people know that God is with us. And if people know that God is with you, they will take the journey of discipleship with you because they want to know God too. And they know you can show them the way. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. That is the story of the opening of Zechariah. Now there's a lot to unpack there in our hearts this morning. I want to make it very simple, this invitation. Jeremy's going to come and play for a moment. I want to open the altars to you for just a moment. There's nothing so pressing in our lives that we can't say something to God this morning about what we've heard. Take a moment right now. The message from Zechariah all the way into the New Testament is this. Turn to God. Turn to God. I know most of the people hearing my voice are born-again Christians. But even born-again Christians need to renew. Turn to God. Turn to God. For many people in this room, what turning to God means is getting on your knees this morning and saying to God, God, I hadn't been that serious about what it means to be in a relationship with you. Just hadn't been serious about it. I value it. I love you. I'm your child. But I just really haven't taken it that seriously. And God, this morning you've spoken to my heart that it is a big deal to be one of your covenant people. So God, I want to renew, I want to just renew my covenant with you this morning. However that needs to be talked out with God, you talk it out for a few minutes this morning. Oh, I speak to another group. Don't be like your parents. I have no idea what your parentage looks like. I, I know what mine looks like. It was wonderful and broken at the same time. So this morning, I'm going to ask you just to interpret the message however you need to interpret it from the Word of God. When God says, don't be like your parents, what does that mean to you? Does it mean a more consistent walk? Or does it mean putting some baggage aside? Or you interpret what that means. And this morning before God, you say to God, God, I want to I wanna do better. I want to be better. Which brings us to the third thing. None of it's going to happen without the Spirit filling us and empowering us. So every believer this morning should say to the Holy Spirit of God that lives in your heart, Holy Spirit, forgive me for ignoring your voice. Give me fresh spiritual ears to hear this morning, to be sensitive to what you're saying, to be eager to hear for my answer to always be yes with a willing heart to obey your voice. You may have family members that are not saved. And you may be praying this morning, God, I, I pray that you will save them. God may be speaking to your heart this morning and saying, I will save them, but I'm waiting for you. Waiting for you to be the one to go speak to them. 
You say, I want Fort Worth to be a better place. Less crime, more kindness, more love, more hospitality, more generosity, more cleanness, more respect, more law-abiding. I think that's what God wants too, and He's waiting on us to lead the way. It's not fair for us to say, God, make Fort Worth a better place. We are God's agents here. And the Spirit of God is working through us. If you're here this morning, never receive Christ as your Savior. There's a great evangelist in the back of the room right now. Just go back and take Brother Rick's hand and say, Rick, show me how to be saved. And in just a few minutes, he'll pray with you show you how you can have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning. Father, we bow before you this morning, thankful to hear an ancient word from Zechariah. God, thank you for using him. Tell him thanks for the words. God, thank you for taking these bizarre visions and dreams and Lord, somehow bringing it to a message that we can understand today about what we can do to be your people in a better way. God, I realize this church is your new Israel. We are your new people, constituted by faith. Lord, help us to reflect this week all of your goodness and love to a world who needs to see that. And Lord, let us reflect the worship of this world back to you. God bless your people this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.